Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm a host of the show. And today I'm thrilled to welcome Kate Cronin Furman. Kate is the Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at University College London, where she directs the Human Rights Master's Program. And she's the author of a brand new book titled Hypocrisy and Human Rights, Resisting Accountability for Mass Atrocities, published by Cornell University Press. Um, it's a fascinating book, a really interesting uh, mix of genres and disciplines, which tackles um, a really hard question. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to exploring that with Kate today. So Kate, thanks for joining us and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies. Well, thank you so much for having me. And so I always start the same way. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself um, and about your path uh, toward becoming interested in studying mass atrocity violence? and um, well, we'll start there. Yeah, sure. Um, so I often say I'm a little bit of an accidental academic, which maybe comes through in my writing. Um, I started my career as a human rights lawyer, um, motivated by a desire to work towards justice for mass atrocities. Um, and I could, I could tell a really long story of, you know, where that came from, you know, grounded in the fact that I am an American of uh, Eastern European Jewish heritage. I was a child when the Rwandan genocide happened, and it was, I think, one of the first news events that I was really kind of fully aware of and reading in the paper. Um, but, you know, for for some constellation of reasons, uh, I went to law school to pursue international criminal law and specifically accountability for genocide and crimes against humanity. And when I came out of law school, um, I went to work in Cambodia where they were setting up the tribunal to prosecute Khmer Rouge leaders. Um, and I, this is a story I tell in the introduction to the book, um, I participated in the sort of um, junkets that the tribunal staff did to, um, you know, sensitize and promote awareness of the tribunal's work to the affected community. So people who either themselves or whose family had survived the Khmer Rouge era. Um, and a really formative moment for me was this day where I was sitting in a room where a bunch of Cambodian villagers had come to hear the tribunal staff talk. And I witnessed the most spectacular moment of like disconnect that I have ever seen between, you know, an audience and a set of speakers. So the tribunal staff gave, you know, a very well rehearsed and you know familiar to all of us who work in this field spiel about combating the culture of imp impunity instilling respect for human rights promoting the rule of law etc um, and then they asked for questions and the people in the audience all asked some variation of where were you in the 1970s when this was happening to us um so i found that quite disheartening 
as a as a brand new baby lawyer um, who was, you know, in it to help people. Um, and I wanted to know, okay, you know, what what evidence do we have that these, you know, decades later tribunals help people, address real needs for them, et cetera. And at the time, there was very little empirical study of this question. So, you know, if I were asking it now, there would be a lot more to kind of read and, and learn. But at the time, there wasn't too much. Um, and I, you know, kind of very quickly became frustrated by what seemed to me to be a real lack of evidence-based medicine hmm. uh, in the field of transitional justice, um, as well as by really obvious inequities in the field, right? So there was a real absence of a satisfactory answer other than, you know, oh, politics to questions like, why do some victims wait decades hmm. for why do the perpetrators of some mass atrocities never get tried? Um, so ultimately, you know, after a couple of years of kind of dithering about this, I decided I was going to go get a PhD, um, learn to do math, uh, which at that point had been <laughs> since I had like calculated anything more complex than the tip on a restaurant check. Um, and I was going to see if I couldn't shed light on some of these dynamics myself. So I'm intrigued. As a historian, a friend of mine who's a social worker looked at me the other day in astonishment and said, you never had a stats class? And I <laughs> smiled and said, no. Why math? Or put differently, why kind of a, a math-based social science discipline like political science? Yeah. Um, and actually, this is a funny question because now I work in the UK where political science almost never has any math. Uh, uh -huh. um, my, my department is a little more Americanized, but mm. in many there still is no math in political science. Um, so I, uh, I will caveat this by saying that I did my undergrad in a non-discipline. So I have a BA from the Gallatin School of Individualized Study at New York University, huh. where um, at the time I enrolled, you didn't even have to like specify anything about what you were going to study. It was a great books curriculum. It was entirely individualized. At some point, two years into my tenure there, um, the school actually like updated the regulations and did require people to kind of specify something about what they were doing. But my advisor put an exception for me on the books. <laughs> um, so I had no knowledge of any disciplinary norms huh. or kind of characteristics even. You know, I, I took some classes in the history department. I took some political science classes, but absorbed absolutely nothing about what the difference in those approaches were. Um, so here I am 10 years later thinking I need to get a PhD. Um, I, um, at law school, had worked with Michael Doyle, um, who is someone who really kind of straddles that law and political science line. Um, I reached out to him to be like, you know, what do I do? Like, do I want to be an anthropologist? You know, what is this? Um, and he, of course, is like, no, no, political science. Um, <laughs> So on the strength of that, I, I applied to political science PhD programs. Um, I think, you know, I think social science over the humanities probably was the right choice for me because what I was interested in was, in some sense, establishing causation and or at least um, kind of being able to pick out um, as correlations and associations across a set of events of, of similar type. Um, and so for that, I did 
kind of need to go and learn the statistics um, in the hopes of being able to think about sort of large N or at least medium N sets of cases in a systematic way. But yeah, the answer to political science is because Michael Doyle told me so, told me to do it. And I was in the habit of just doing whatever he told me at that point, which, you know, is not not a bad rule to go by, I think. <laughs> um, you also are one of the conveners of the Advancing Research on Conflict Consortium. Could, so can you say something about what that is and what its goals are and what you see your role there? As being? Yeah, so so this is a, um, an organization founded by Sarah Parkinson and Millie Lake, who are also um, you know, political scientists um, doing, doing comparative work. Um, the, the goal of ARC um, is to provide resources and training and support um, to researchers, especially PhD students working in um, conflict affected environments. Um, so, you know, there's a kind of a couple of strands to that. Um, a big part of it is about um, helping people to work ethically and sensitively in those environments. I think, you know, especially for those of us who came up in political science um, in the sort of early years of this century and probably the end of the last one, um, there were was something of a, of a cowboy culture around um, work in, you know, contexts that had suffered civil wars in the recent past or were were still um, experiencing violence um, where, you know, people gained a lot of street cred from doing work in those contexts. Um, but there was very little kind of inquiry into how the work they were doing was affecting the people that they were doing research with and among. Um, so, you know, one of the things we try to do is foster dialogue around ethics and also provide training around ethics. Um, you know, from, from anyone who's read my work will know that, um, you know, I'm often working in places that are, um, you know, very much violence affected, are potentially heavily surveilled by government agents, where, you know, the communities I'm working with have, um, you know, potentially experienced a lot of trauma. And all of these are factors that, you know, raise the level of risk, right, to having, um, you know, early career researchers with little kind of experience in the environment come in and ask questions about sensitive topics. Um, so, you know, I do think it's really important that, you know, we provide systematic training to grad students, which is something that unfortunately is still really lacking in the field of political science. Uh, I suspect it's not only political science where that is lacking, but um, well, let's turn to the book. Uh, and long ago, when I was in graduate school, maybe I should say just a few years ago when I was in graduate school. <laughs> Last uh, year. Yeah, let's go with that. Um, my advisor told me that um, that at the core of any history book was a narrative. At the core of any political science or social science book was a table or a chart. <laughs> a two it's, by two. Right? Yeah. And in some sense, in your book, that's true. Well, we'll come back to some of the other chapters, but at least the core chapter of the book is a is a chart where you try and 
create a large body of evidence, a number of, look at a, a number of cases of responses to mass atrocities um, to answer a question, what happens after mass atrocities? You've even helpfully labeled your chapter that. Um, so I'd like to start there. And so how do you define in your investigation mass atrocities? That's so interesting that you pick that as the core mm. of the book, because for me, that is the remnant of the dissertation. Oh, how interesting. Um, uh -huh. And it, it ended up taking me quite a long time to convert this into a book because the mm. pandemic happened. I had a young child. Um, so, you know, the book didn't end up coming out until, you know, seven years after I finished the dissertation, which meant I was kind of wrapping up the writing at yeah. five or six years post-dissertation. And, you know, my, my work had really moved since then. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, the book is a little bit still an uneasy kind of sewn together yeah. uh, whole of, you know, kind of where I was at in my kind of current thinking and, you know, where I had been at wrapping the mm -hmm. dissertation. That chapter for me is very much, you know, the dissertation making its presence known. Mm -hmm. People ask me which parts of the book to read. I'm always like, oh, you know, read the intro, read the chap chapter mm -hmm. one, chapter on Sri Lanka, read the yeah. conclusion. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yes, yeah, so that that is kind of the the write up and yeah. the update of the quantitative work that I did for my dissertation, where I wanted to um, have as comprehensive a data set of mass atrocities as I could, covering the period in which there was some expectation or at least some pressure. Mm -hmm on post-atrocity states to provide accountability for mass atrocities that occurred on their territory. And I thought when I started the research for that, that this was gonna be a relatively straightforward process of using some existing lists of mass atrocities mm -hmm. and then coding, okay, what happened after them? I very quickly realized that there was no existing list I could appeal to. So I was gonna have to start the process much kind of further back on the, on the chain than I expected. Um, and so I spent probably about a year trying to figure out what things that had happened between like 1970 and 2014 were mass atrocities. And because I was concerned with which states experienced pressure for accountability, really what I wanted to know was what things that happened would international audiences think was a mass atrocity, mm -hmm. which is a different question mm -hmm. and it's one that you know certainly changes over time. Um, so you know, I looked at kind of coding protocols of every existing list. Um, I ultimately tried to just um, have kind of an over-inclusive approach to this, um, and you know, I did have to settle on like quantitative mm -hmm. thresholds. Um, so, you know, here I'm using, I believe, and correct me if I've got this wrong, because it was a long time ago, um, any event where, you know, 1,000 intentional killings of civilians occurred over a 30-day period or 
5,000 over any period. And that was an attempt to capture both kind of intense bursts of violence against civilians, as well as the sort of um, longer trajectory, you know, Punta violence where, you know, 7,000 people are being disappeared over a period of, you know, eight, 10, 15 years. Um, so that's what I did. But, you know, as you can see, having read the book, I had quite a lot of angst about it. So I also wrote a very long kind of essay at the beginning of that chapter. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to try to define a mass atrocity and where are the pitfalls and, you know, how do we deal with kind of information effects and, you know, uh, uh, basically the effects of white supremacy, right, mm -hmm. where there's bias against mm -hmm you know, considering events in which 100 Africans die as being of the same magnitude as an event in which 100 Europeans die. So I think probably that angst comes through pretty clearly in the book, if I had to guess. I'm, I'm always happy to encourage angst among social scientists. That's part of my job. Um, so then what's the answer to the chapter title? What, what happens after mass atrocities? You know, I often joke at conferences that if I could make everyone get context matters tattooed, <laughs> so the answer here, as everywhere, is yeah. context matters, mm -hmm. right? It really depends. Um, and, you know, this is not kind of a, a theoretical argument of my book so much as it is just an observation that I try to kind of lay out in great detail. Um, but it depends on the relative power of, of perpetrators and perpetrator-aligned groups and victim groups in a post-atrocity society. You know, it depends if that post-atrocity society is democratic. It depends what the kind of um, ruling uh, regime's constituency or, you know, selectorate looks like. Um, and, you know, essentially, you know, the, the too long didn't read of it is, you only get robust accountability for mass atrocities when it is in that ruling regime's political interests to do so. Um, and those political interests also shape what accountability processes look like as well as whether they are put in place. So does it depend, thinking about this context, does it depend, I'll word it this way first, does it depend on whether the people in charge believe that the things had done were, they had done were wrong? or put maybe in a more technical language, does it depend on this norm of human rights being widely distributed and accepted? I think there's kind of two pieces to that question. Um, you know, the, the first thing I'll say is that perpetrators of atrocities never prosecute themselves, mm -hmm. right? So if you have perpetrators of atrocities still holding power, you, you simply do not see kind of robust justice for anything that has occurred. So uh, regardless of the strength of the norm, and, and I would argue that this is actually a fairly strong norm, um, you don't see remorse among perpetrators and the decisions like to say like, oh, we shouldn't have done that. And now because we shouldn't have done that, we will institute prosecutions. Um, so there's kind of that piece of it. Um, you know, when, when there's been a regime change, when, you know, perpetrators are not in power, um, then yes, you know, I, I do think, you know, the norm matters and the fact that, you know, there's kind of often 
fairly cohesive international pressure around doing something in the aftermath of account of um, atrocities. Um, but it often kind of matters through indirect and, and very, you know, domestic politics inflected roots. So um, the norm matters because victims hear what victims in other post-atrocity contexts have done. The norm matters because they have networks to the international community. Um, it matters because, uh, you know, people in power have um, you know, participated in international institutions in, in official roles, et cetera. So it's, you know, it's quite a complex and, and indirect process. So you, you outline pretty carefully a wide variety of strategies and responses that governments, <clears throat> excuse me, within a country uh, might take. You focus on the creation of institutions that at least are meant to appear to respond to international pressure for accountability. Um, so why are you so interested in that case? And, and, and what's your thesis? So at the time I was kind of starting the the coding for this and the dissertation, you know, kind of looking for, you know, what what case studies I might want to incorporate. Um, I started to kind of pick up on this repeated dynamic where um, post-atrocity states, you know, states that were <laughs> still in the process of committing an atrocity, um, would be the targets of international pressure, right, to, to both stop committing atrocities and to provide justice for, for what had occurred. Um, and obviously, they're not going to comply, right? They're not going to do what, you know, international alliances are asking them to, because that's completely counter to their interests. But they often also don't do nothing. Um, and I found that quite interesting um, because I think, you know, early in my grad school career, the conversation about compliance with international obligations um, was still fairly kind of binary in nature, right? So it was sort of, um, you know, legal academics and people with a very rosy view of international institutions arguing that these institutions work and, you know, states do what they commit to, and then the sort of more realist um, and often kind of rational choice approach people saying, you know, no, international law is epiphenomenal, states mm -hmm. only do what's in their interest, and if it's not in their interest, they don't do it. Um, and what I was seeing, and, you know, what you know, lots of other scholars have also observed, is that those institutions and those efforts have effects, right? They may not be, and they almost never are, you know, what, what the designers of those institutions are aiming for. Uh, but that doesn't mean they're not doing anything. Um, and I actually, you know, think, you know, as, as someone who came to this uh, uh, originally as, as an advocate and activist, like, I think it's really important to understand what those impacts are, you know, what, what the kind of limits are, um, and, you know, study and measure them. Um, you know, both for, for academic reasons, but also for kind of advocacy reasons. So that's why I'm focused on, you know, what I call quasi-compliance here, which is um, a sort of 
a performance, right, of um, in which states set up institutions that sort of almost look like what they're being asked by international audiences to do, but aren't actually in compliance with their human rights obligations. Um, and, you know, in my theoretical model, this is basically um, gambling on kind of doing enough to avoid penalty without actually having to do the thing they're being asked to do. So so quasi-compliance. So what is the difference? What is the, how do you tell the difference between quasi-compliance and real compliance? Let's start there. So, so in the book, at least I'm, I'm focused for the most part on this specific context mm -hmm. of accountability for mass atrocities. Um, and this is an arena in which there is a fairly clear obligation, right, which, you know, is, is almost always framed as um, individual criminal liability for those most responsible for the most serious international crimes. So kind of gold standard, full compliance would look like criminal prosecution and conviction of, you know, those at the highest levels of civilian or military hierarchies responsible for committing atrocities. Obviously, we almost never see gold standard compliance with anything, right? Like it's all, you know, kind of fuzzy lines and, and shades of gray. Um, but quasi-compliance, um, quasi-compliant institutions, at least, you know, in what I'm observing in this data set, basically lack all of the key components, right, of, of the sort of normative obligation to supply accountability for mass atrocities. So we often see states, you know, focusing only on like low level trigger pullers, um, focusing only on, you know, uh, specific actions rather than kind of broader campaigns of commission of mass atrocities. Um, we see, you know, institutions that are not actually able to uh, pinpoint individual criminal liability. So rather than, um, you know, prosecutions, we see commissions of inquiry that don't actually sort of name individuals as responsible. Um, so there tends to be pretty clear distinction between, you know, what like full-on compliance would look like and what quasi-compliance looks like in this arena. Where it's a little tougher to tell the difference is between what is quasi-compliance and what are good faith but inadequate efforts to comply. Um, and you know, there, you know, what I what I argue in the book is that that's when we have to kind of look at the rhetoric that surrounds it, right? Um, and you know, think about you know what is the state actually signaling along with its actions. So presumably, if quasi-compliance was cost-free, everyone, every state or government would opt for it. But you argue that it's not cost-free. How so? Yeah, so so this is where I'm kind of distinguishing my theoretical account from, you know, cheap talk, for instance, right? So this is something that states do, that they actually pay substantial resource and political costs to do. So, you know, on the resource side, Setting up institutions is not cheap, right? They have to be, um, you know, they have to be budgeted for, um, which often, you know, is done legislatively, sometimes just straight through by the executive. Um, but, you know, these are non, non negligible sums of money going into setting up an institution and paneling commissioners, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, and then, you know, on the on the political side, in you know, this this is something that is occurring in states whose domestic politics do not support the pursuit of accountability, which means that it can actually be quite politically risky for a regime to put in place even one of these quasi-compliant institutions. So, um, you know, we see um, opposition parties kind of, uh, you know, making a big deal of the fact that the regime is caving to international pressure by setting up a commission of inquiry. Um, you know, when it comes to election time, that becomes kind of politically salient. Um, we see you know, the possibility that, you know, if your military is heavily implicated in mass atrocities and your civilian government decides to set up even a quasi-compliant institution, those military officers may feel threatened. And, you know, now you're dealing with a restive army, which is not a position any political leader wants to be in. Um, so basically, kind of my my theory of what's going on here is that these regimes are trying to kind of thread that needle of, of um, you know, avoiding paying costs at the international level by paying a bearable amount of cost at the domestic level. So you do this in a more sophisticated way than I'm going to use the term, but uh, you, you think as a lay person would talk about game th theory rather than a professional, you lay out the variables or the constellation of factors that lead a government to choose quasi-compliance. So what are those? What What is the situation where this is a choice that makes sense? Um, yeah, it's, it's a, a pretty common one, actually. So it tends to be where, where you know, one, there's um, cohesive international pressure, right? So international audiences are, you know, demanding that, the regime, the, the government do something, right? Provide justice for acts of mass atrocities that have occurred, occurred in its borders. Um, they have a domestic political constituency that is opposed to that, right? So, um, you know, one of the cases that I talk about in a lot of detail in the book is Sri Lanka. Um, this is a context in which the state military committed serious abuses against um, the Tamil community um and their civilian population specifically um you know throughout the civil war but but particularly in the final phase of the civil war um the majority community by and large very much supported the war effort right they they understood the Tamil militancy to be terrorists um and to be engaged in an illegitimate struggle um, they, you know, did not have much sympathy for for civilians um, that lost their lives during the war, um, and you know, once the war ended, really just wanted to not think about it anymore. Um, so, you know, this this is, you know, not an atypical case, right? Where you know, if um, you know, uh, atrocities are committed against a marginalized group within a society that the majority community doesn't have much sympathy for. Now you have a majority community and a majority share of your electorate that, you know, really is opposed to pursuing justice. So, you know, they've got those two kind of opposing forces, um, you know, at the international level and the domestic level. And then the kind of critical third component is that 
is the government that cannot afford to tell the international community to just get lost and mind its own business. Um, so, you know, I think if we're looking at, you know, China, for instance, right, you know, China is a case where, you know, we have current atrocities being committed against the Uyghur population. That is a very marginalized community within Chinese society. Um, Obviously, we have many actors at the international level calling for accountability for what's happened to the Uyghurs, but China is not vulnerable to international pressure, right? So we don't expect to see them paying costs to sort of simulate the appearance of doing something about atrocities because they don't need to. And so who is the target of quasi-compliance? You suggest it's not actually... Human Rights Watch or the International Com Criminal Court. Who's the target? Yeah, so so this is where I think this is actually most interesting. Um, basically, you know, we 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 might assume, looking at states doing this, that they are trying to convince Western governments, the UN, Human Rights Watch, as you say, you know, those actors that are being very loud and you know vocal about calling for accountability. We might expect that the states are trying to convince those actors that like, hey, you know, get off your, our backs, you know, we're handling it. Um, I don't actually think that's true, or at least it's not necessary that any of those actors be convinced for quasi-compliance to work. I actually think this is um, a fairly clever way of exploiting the international system's non-hierarchical nature, right? The fact that um, you know, there is no kind of clear and easy mechanism for human rights enforcement, and it tends to, to rely on, on coalitions and on states being willing to, like, pay the costs to enforce. Um, so I tend to think that where quasi-compliance is successful, it's because it offers peer states, basically, um, you know, those states who you know, may not be that engaged in the case, may have their own reasons to sort of be skeptical or resistant to robust international human rights interventions or enforcement. Um, it gives those states basically a fig leaf um, to, to side with the post-atrocity state. So um, because I think that's kind of a, a, a confusing mm -hmm. uh, set of statements, let me give an example. Yeah. Uh, often decisions to decisions to pursue kind of international engagement and you know investigation into atrocities are undertaken at the UN Human Rights Council that is a body where they need a majority to pass anything um so you know, often we have the US, the UK, Canada, other European states, sometimes, you know, Latin American states, you know, being very vocal about the need to pursue accountability, but they need to get a majority in order to actually pass a resolution. So, you know, we see a state like Sri Lanka coming to the UN Human Rights Council and saying, look, you know, we've set up our own institution, you know, we're, we're dealing with this with our own homegrown methods, um, you know, we don't need your sort of colonial Western intervention here. We're handling it. That can sound fairly credible to, um, you know, a set of global South states that 
you know, don't want the West intervening in their sovereign affairs as well. Um, and, you know, that can be enough to sort of derail a resolution that would impanel an investigative commission, for instance. And again, it's not really, it doesn't really require that anyone buy that that Sri Lanka or, you know, whatever state um, we're talking about here is pursuing justice for atrocities. Um, it just requires that their sort of show of, yes, we're doing something, um, you know, give us time, get off our backs, resonates enough for, you know, some some population of like swing states, right? Um, so basically, I kind of think of this as like coalition blocking behavior. Yeah. So... So I, I, a good friend of mine is a political scientist, and I, she and I occasionally argue about the methodology of history and political scientists. And at one point where clearly I had uh, won the argument as uh, natural, um, she just kind of threw her hands up and said, well, but but how, el how else are we supposed to figure out what to do? Which is a way of introducing the questions then, given your analysis of... Um, quasi accountability, what conclusions then do you reach as somebody interested in human rights and accountability? What does this tell us about how we should respond to this? Yeah, um, you know, this is a question I thought about a lot as I was writing this book, um, because again, you know, I, I came to it from starting out as a human rights lawyer um, and, you know, starting out as a human rights lawyer who was really committed to the idea of accountability for mass atrocities. Um, it was also an important question for me to be able to say something about because I spoke to so many, you know, victim survivor communities in the course of the research for this book. And, you know, they took time to kind of educate me on what they had experienced. Um, they, you know, recounted, you know, serious suffering that they had undergone. Um, and, you know, it was clear in many of those conversations that, you know, the reason that they told their stories over and over again, and, you know, I've, I have spoken to survivors who have told their stories 60 or 70 times to, you know, external, um, you know, interveners, right, journalists, academics, human rights officials, etc. The reason they were telling their stories so many times was because they believed that eventually it would help, right? It was it was not just, you know, catharsis or, you know, wanting to be helpful and responding to questions. It was that they believed there would be some instrumental value in many cases. Um, so I felt like it was really, really important to have something to say to victim communities. And, you know, I think that's something, especially for those of us whose research findings could be constructed as cynical, um, and I, I do not believe I am cynical or that these findings are necessarily pessimistic, but, you know, when they could be interpreted that way, I think we have an obligation to say something about where do we go from here, um, which is to say, you know, I, I spend a fair amount of time in the book's conclusion talking about this. Um, and, you know, I think there are a couple of important takeaways um, from you know, what I kind of argue and find in the book. Um, one is that even though, you know, we don't see perpetrator regimes responding to international pressure by setting up 
um, you know, gold standard, robust accountability mechanisms. That doesn't mean demanding that they do it is necessarily a poor strategic choice, right? So it is true that those demands don't materially affect their kind of disincentives to provide justice for mass atrocities. Um, but those demands can still be really important for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that, you know, one of the things I sort of, I, that I think is a contribution of this book um, is this focus on like third party audiences, right? So, you know, signals don't just impact the target of the signal, right? We are in a complex international system where, you know, all of this is visible um, and, it is important to send strong signals around human rights obligations, right? Because it may have much more impact on unintended audiences than on the intended one. So there's that. But the other piece of this is that, you know, the value of like making unrealistic demands becomes much clearer when we consider the consequences of not making them, right? So when we kind of think about the counterfactual here. So one of the examples that I, I um, point to in the book is, you know, in the aftermath of um, the, the assault on the Rohingya by Myanmar in 2017, there was kind of a real dilemma around, you know, whether there ought to be a push for a Security Council referral of this crisis to the International Criminal Court. Um, and, you know, many people kind of very rightly pointed out that this was like a non-starter because obviously, you know, China would veto, Russia would veto. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, why, why bother? Um, but, you know, however, however flawed the, the prospect is, or however kind of impossible it is to kind of push forward, UN Security Council referral is the mechanism that exists for pursuing accountability for atrocities that are committed outside the territory of ICC member states. So failing to pursue that would have risked, you know, signaling to these victims that their suffering was less worthy of international concern um, than, you know, victims elsewhere where referrals had been put forward. And I think also, you know, abandoning the effort to get this like really obviously qualifying case to the ICC would have also had downstream effects, right? So potentially like undermining an already not that well entrenched system. Um, so I think, you know, what what we see there is that, you know, yes, you know, these demands do not have the results that we might want them to. But the counterfactual where they are not made is almost certainly a worse outcome for everybody. So I think, you know, this is not this is not analogous to like classic bargaining advice, mm -hmm. right? Which is like, you know, you make maximalist demands and then you expect to land at a compromised position. That's not the world we're in. Um, we're not, you know, like wringing lesser concessions by doing this. Um, but it is simply an acknowledgement that because of the complex context in which pursuit of justice for atrocities plays out, signals, demands always have impacts on audiences other than those to whom they're addressed um, and, you know, really do produce valuable results through indirect paths. Um, so that's kind of the, the big picture thing. On a kind of smaller and more sort of, you know, actionable level, um, you know, I think the fact that 
you know, the clear, the clear sort of descriptive contribution of this book is that, you know, domestic support is a necessary precondition for robust accountability for atrocities. And, you know, that is something international actors can impact, mm. right? You know, it's, it's, um, it's hard work, um, but, you know, we do actually know how to sort of facilitate change and then mm. you know there are some examples of the u.s doing it in really <laughs> appalling and problematic ways mm -hmm. um but you know this is something we know how to do so you know international audiences can you know push civil society groups that they support and fund in majority communities to kind of you know, take up issues of accountability and human rights with their co-ethnics, right? Um, you know, they can um, they can provide um, capacity building to, you know, victim survivor community activists, right? To to do evidence gathering and preservation safely, right? Um, they can provide support to any softliners in government in order to kind of protect their position and, you know, make them less vulnerable to retaliation. Um, you know, all of these are things that, you know, don't have the immediate splashy impacts that we might want, but really do kind of go towards changing the domestic conditions and facilitate, you know, the possibility of accountability down the line. Okay. Excuse me. Your conclusion is really rich. And one of the things I was struck by was your, your discussion, which is partly in the body of your work, but also really stressed in the conclusion of the, the way this gold standard itself has changed, that mm -hmm. the ideas of what the ideal rec uh, outcome of wrestling with mass atrocities would be. Uh, and in some sense, the way in which patterns of or perhaps unevenness of enforcement, those are your words, in the international system can actually change expectations about what human rights standards require or should be. Can you, you talk a little bit about, about that and your sense of, of, of that challenge? Yeah, so when I was originally kind of trying to write the theory part of my dissertation I spent a lot of time drawing like you know like bullseye targets mm -hmm. because I think you know it's a it's a reasonable way to kind of visually represent how norms work in settings of of imperfect enforcement or you know um, inconsistent enforcement because you have sort of the like hardcore of the norm, right? And, you know, the the gold standard, what the norm requires. Um, and then there's sort of the broader set of, or the broader kind of area covered by, you know, what actors will be pushed to do, right? And, you know, what kind of, international audiences will consider compliance. And then there's the additional area, which is what international audiences will accept, right? Um, so, and the boundaries between each of these zones are in constant movement. So, you know, we may know 
you know, what the, the very like precise legalistic definition of what the norm requires is, but it's going to change from case to case and from year to year, what is treated as compliance and Additionally, what is treated as actionable non-compliance, and there's quite a lot of distance and ambiguity there. Um, so, you know, I I talk in the conclusion a little bit about the way that like understanding of truth commissions has changed over the years. Um, in terms of you know, is is a truth commission accountability for mass atrocities, or is that an impermissible? Uh, you know, amnesty, right, or, you know, impermissible avoidance of, um, you know, pursuing justice and, and individual criminal liability. And this is something that has both kind of evolved over time, but also really varies from case to case. And some of that has to do with the particular institutional features of specific truth commissions, but it also has to do with, with, with context um, and, you know, adding an additional layer of complexity to all this is the fact that none of these cases occur in isolation. So, you know, when we talk about, you know, what happened to the Rohingya, we are talking about something that occurred in the context of civil war in Syria having been ongoing for years at that point, right? And a, and a real failure of accountability there. Um, would international attention and response to the Rohingya in 2017 have been different were it not for the Syrian crisis continuing to unfold? Probably, but who can say how? Uh, so I think, you know, there, there, are, there are so many layers of complexity and so many dimensions in which complexity is added, um, that you know, it, it. I, I ultimately, with my like bullseye target, wanted to like you know, <laughs> animate it <laughs> and make it three dimensional because it's just like, <laughs> wow, there's a lot going on here. Uh -huh. Um, so I will just uh, to uh, call back to something you said a little bit ago about listening to survivors or or witnesses. Um, offered their testimonies. I'll just point listeners back to an interview I did recently with Alexa Haggerty, where she talks about testimonials and the experience of listening to people tell their story in Guatemala and Argentina. And you can find that in your feed or you can find that on the webpage. Um, I'd like to pull back just a little bit in the last few minutes we have. Um, one of the things that is striking about your book is the nimbleness with which you navigate different genres of writing. And so some of this, as you say, there's theory chapters, which are very clearly written in the voice of a political scientist. And then there are case study chapters or sections which are written in the voice of a journalist or a historian or something like that, of a storyteller, of a narrator. So can you talk a little bit about, about the choices you made as you wrote the book in terms of style and voice that you chose to use? Yes. So I try not to vary my voice much. So I am originally a blogger, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I started blogging about human rights issues in 2008 in the, the golden age of blogging. Um, and my and my co-editor, co-founder, who, who is now, by the way, a New York Times reporter who writes mm -hmm. the interpreter column, mm -hmm. uh, 
our goal with that blog um, was to talk about, you know, human rights crises and, and world events in a way that like our younger siblings, our parents who were not kind of expert or, you know, particularly engaged in these issues would find accessible. Um, it was also a humor blog because both of us cope with darkness through humor. Um, I so, you know, we were in some sense telling mass atrocity jokes, but also trying to kind of communicate, for instance, events in Democratic Republic of Congo for, you know, a Western readership that had never been there, would never go there um, in a way that would, you know, make them care. Um, so that's kind of my priors. Um, I, I came to grad school and obviously, you know, got forcibly professionalized because that's what happens to you in a PhD program. Um, but, you know, remained pretty committed to not, you know, taking on the, the full-on academic voice. Um, and, and part of my thinking there um, is that, you know, this is in some sense uh, an ethical commitment, yeah. right? Because academic voice is not available to everybody. Um, and, you know, there are, <laughs> there are vast inequities in who is told that their natural ways of speaking and writing are unprofessional. Um, so I guess, you know, the way I think of it is that, you know, I, as a white woman coming from elite institutions, I have some privilege there in that I can deviate from kind of the the kind of strongly held professional norms of, you know, how to how to speak and how to write. And that hopefully by people like me taking those steps, it becomes more normalized and becomes more available to people in less privileged groups. And maybe I'm fooling myself with that, but that is my hope. <laughs> um, so I generally try to write everything as accessibly as I can. Um, and, you know, I tend to speak and write fairly similarly. Um, with the book, it was important to me that chapters could be assigned standalone for, for undergraduates to read in intro courses. Um, it was important to me that members of victim communities who I had spoken to could read the chapters and recognize themselves right and and you know recognize the story that they had told me and you know obviously all of your interlocutors are not going to agree with your analysis so you know that's kind of a pipe dream but you know would at least believe that I, would at least feel that i had faithfully represented them and not exploited their story um so i was always kind of conscious both of you know students and um, of the, the people who I was writing about. And I think I often feel like that is something that gets quite lost in political science research. And, and that is a real distinction from, from history as a discipline, right? That, you know, often political scientists are writing about some of the most deeply traumatic things that can happen to humans, and there are no humans in yeah. the writing. Um, so, so it was really important to me to not do that. Um, so I think... You know, the the parts of the book that are more dissertation-y probably read a little more academic, um, but the parts that I that I wrote more re 
recently are are pretty self-consciously written in a way that I hoped would be accessible to, you know, if not, you know, lay people who aren't interested in human rights, at least accessible to to undergraduates and to my family, um, to the people I was writing about. Yeah, and I, I usually, and I will in a moment, ask you to, but I usually ask guests to recommend a book. Here I'll just say I'm I'm in the process of selecting the common read for the honors program I direct here at Newman, and, and one of the candidates is a really quite good book called How You Say It, Why We Judge Others by the Way They Talk by uh, uh, Catherine Kinsler, which is a really quite good analysis of exactly the kind of uh, ethical dilemmas you pointed to um, and 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 how we might respond to them. Um, you also have written a little bit anyway about uh, the obvious uh, ongoing current question that I'm sure our listeners are thinking about, which is Ukraine. So I wonder how might we use your analysis as a way of imagining what might happen after the war is done and what that should prompt us to do in terms of perhaps trying to make accountability more likely? So interestingly, um, I I read the prospects for accountability in Ukraine very um, optimistically Mm. because it is not the type of case that I am talking about in this book, right? So, um, you know, I had a a foreign policy um, article last year, I think last year with um, my colleague, Anjali Dial. Um, And, you know, what we were writing about there was about, you know, the, the importance of the fact that Ukraine is a state, right? Obviously, you know, Russia has committed horrific atrocities, right? And, you know, I think, you know, people are um, kind of rightly debating whether these rise to the level of genocide against the Ukrainian people. Um, Under any circumstances, they're certainly crimes against humanity. Um, You know, there's no doubt that Ukrainian civilians have suffered horribly. Um, And so, you know, none of this is to caveat that or minimize it, Mm -hmm. but they are such more legible victims to the international community than many of the people in the cases that I'm more familiar with. And, you know, part of that is racialized for sure. And, you know, lots of scholars from the global South have pointed this out uh, very eloquently. You know, what what does it mean when we have blonde haired, blue eyed victims, right? Um, So, you know, obviously that's a huge element of it. But another piece of it is just that Ukraine is a state that's had its sovereignty violated. um, And that is a far less complex and you know risky thing for other states to object to um it is you know just a, a simpler proposition all around and additionally you know what it means for the prospect of accountability is ukraine has a justice system yeah. ukraine has you know very highly trained lawyers um prosecutors who are able to take this on obviously you know the magnitude 
is, you know, too much for any one country's justice system to handle. Um, but, you know, Ukraine was able to invite the ICC in very early. ICC went in with its largest ever investigative team. Um, so, you know, between that ability to, you know, cooperate with the inter international institution to conduct prosecutions and investigations themselves, Ukrainian victims are in a um, much more promising situation for prospects for accountability than they otherwise might be. Um, so I think, you know, obviously, you know, when we look at Russia, you know, Russia is exactly the kind of state that doesn't have to bother with any of this quasi-compliance stuff that I'm talking about mm -hmm. in the book, um, because they have the power to just say, you know, screw you guys, mm -hmm. like, we're not going to do anything you say. Um, but the fact that this is occurring on Ukrainian territory and, you know, these are Ukrainian victims of, um, you know, of territorial aggression by another state um, does, you know, compared to these other cases that, that, you know, I've spent my time researching, you know, things, things look rosier for the, the prospects of actually seeing people prosecuted and punished for these crimes. Well, I do appreciate that in a year of reading and listening to opinions about Ukraine, you're the first person I've ever heard use the word rosy in that context. Um, and uh, there are other, I, I just want to point out to the, to, as usual, I, and I could say this about any book, but we've only focused on a small part of Kate's book. And I would encourage you to go out and read, uh, read the whole thing. And in particular, she's got a very useful chapter thinking about the evolution of international mechanisms and institutions uh, and the kind of co-evolution of those institutions and the emerging norms of human rights that is well worth reading. Uh, but but I've asked probably too much of your time. So I'll just move to the last two questions I always ask, one of which is, um, do you have a suggestion to the audience uh, or and or me about a book or a documentary or something that we should go read or watch that was important to you while you were working on this book? So. I could answer that question in a straightforward manner. Uh, <laughs> but you're not but going to, are you? <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, so I have always been really fixated on the idea of like emotional antidotes to huh, challenging uh -huh. or stressful experiences. Uh -huh. um, so for me, and, you know, I think this is potentially helpful to anyone kind of working on these kind of topics. You know, for me, it was more important to read and watch things that would sort of counteract the experience of writing this book and doing this research um, than it was to, you know, read and watch things that were kind of complementary yeah. with it. Um, so uh, I, in the course of writing this book, read a ton of very formulaic detective stories about uh, women in the 1920s huh. solving mysteries. Um, and when I worked in Cambodia on the, the setup of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, I watched a lot of America's Next Top Model season three. Uh -huh. um, and so I think, you know, something I always tell my students is, you know, figure out what that is for you, yeah. right? Um, because you do need to have that kind of um, escape, right, from the work. Um, so I think, you know, I, I highly recommend uh, the Amazon Unlimited vast supply of virtually identical books about women solving mysteries. 
1920s. Um, but I also recommend that, you know, everyone listening kind of gives some thought to, you know, what is the thing for them that, yeah. you know, best counteracts whatever, you know, challenging or difficult work they're engaged in. I, I have a very vivid memory of reading a column by an NPR correspondent uh, who was covering the Iraq war who said that, um, who was writing about how Buffy the Vampire Slayer had allowed her to get through that that conflict. And, and I have to confess, uh, my other professional interest is the history of women's sports, which is compelling and important in its own way, but also allows me that kind of opportunity to shift my, my, my gaze and my focus. Uh, so I get it, that is a straightforward answer. Um, Perhaps or perhaps not, you'll be able to answer the next question straightforwardly, and it's an unfair question since you just finished this book, but um, I always ask it anyway. What's next? What are you working on? Yeah, so I'm actually working on another book. <laughs> uh, I, you know, one of the kind of... Um, one of the things that was consistent for me in doing the research for this book um, was being reminded again and again of how much work survivors of atrocities have to do to get their experiences just recognized before we can get to the question of like, you know, reparations or justice. Um, and, you know, part of that is that they're often, you know, doing the very dangerous work of documenting the atrocities against them. Um, so I knew kind of coming out of the research for this book that, you know, I wanted to kind of, um, you know, shed some light on that and, you know, um, you know, work more with, with those communities. Um, I think, you know, the, from a sort of international relations theory perspective, the central contribution of this book of hypocrisy and human rights is about hypocrisy. And it's the fact that um, hypocrisy can protect an audience's reputation more than it protects the hypocritical actor's reputation, which is not you know, usually what we think about hypocrisy as doing. Um, and I got really interested just generally in, you know, how you know, what, what work does hypocrisy do for audiences? Um, so, you know, what I'm looking at in my current book project um, is what happens when perpetrators of atrocities deny that they are, they are or have committed atrocities, right? Um, how does that, you know, affect their status on the international stage? What does it do to the prospects of, you know, intervention, of condemnation? And again, you know, these are implausible denials. Nobody buys them. Um, and, you know, what does it mean for victim communities? Because if a state is denying that they've committed atrocities, they're not letting journalists in, they're not letting Human Rights Watch in. Um, and that means that it falls to the victims to do the work of documenting, of transmitting evidence to international audiences, um, of you know advocating for themselves on the international stage. Um, so I'm kind of looking at you know what I basically consider to be like a strategic interaction between you know these state perpetrators issuing these implausible denials um, and these victim communities who are who are impacted not just by the atrocities that have been committed against them, but now by the effort to conceal uh, and deny. 
Well, it sounds like a fascinating pro uh, project, and I hope uh, when it's done, you'll come back on the New Books Network to talk about it. We've been talking with Kate Cronin-Furman about her book, Hypocrisy and Human Rights, Resisting Accountability for Mass Atrocities. Kate, thank you so much for your time, um, and uh, I hope that we'll be able to talk again on the network. Thank you so much for having me.